Welcome to Digital Hospitality. I am your host, Sean Walchef. This is a Cali BBQ Media production. Every single week we talk about our ongoing thesis, and that is digital hospitality. Every business needs to be digital first, and every business needs to be in the hospitality business. Now, what exactly does that mean? For us, if you've been listening to this podcast, you know what we do. We talk to people that are playing the game within the game. So technology has come at such a rapid rate that as a barbecue brand, a barbecue brick and mortar barbecue business, we have become a media company. How have we done that? We've done that because it is easy to produce content and to share content in ways that typically you'd have to go to a radio station, a local news station, um, develop a relationship with a local food writer. Well, now you can blog, now you can put on a podcast, now you can create content for TikTok, for LinkedIn. You can share your own story in ways that opens you up to sell things to people all over the globe. Why is this exciting? This is exciting because it's transforming how we run restaurants, it's transforming how we do business in real life, it will always be important, the human to human interaction. What's exciting to us is all businesses need to be in the hospitality business. So the things that we've learned, the principles we've learned as a restaurant, how to take care of people in real life, the businesses that are winning are the ones that are taking care of people online the same way that restaurant owners do in real life. So it's not ignoring the Yelp reviews. It's not ignoring the Google reviews, not ignoring the post on Facebook or somebody DMing you on Instagram. It's the people that are developing these deep human interactions. Those are the ones that are winning. Those are the ones that are making memorable moments online. That is transforming their business, helping them scale their business. Today, we get to speak with the founder and CEO of Sparkplug, Andrew Duffy, who is building something that fits right into our digital hospitality thesis. Um, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Sean. Really happy to be here. Yes, yeah, super exciting for me. So I'm, uh, you know, doing the research for the show. And one of the things that stood out to me was uh, something that you guys wrote on your website, which is brick and mortar businesses aren't dying. But the future of real of retail is becoming more personalized and more interactive. It's hospitality. It's understanding that we need humans to run our village store, no matter what size that store is but how do we actually take care of the people that are running that store? I'd use this example all the time. When I go into Home Depot or I go into Lowe's, are the customers there engaged? Mm -hmm. What is the difference between hospitality and customer service? And for me, customer service is bullshit because customer service is the lowest standard of care. It is somebody literally clocking in, hoping to clock out. It is somebody that is there to work that literally all they need to do is treat someone like a human. What is hospitality? Hospitality is listening. Hospitality is being empathetic. Hospitality is going above and beyond to create a memorable moment. If you want to be at work, you're incentivized to create a memorable moment because that's in your DNA. That's who you are and what you do. Why did you create Spark Club? I think you hit the nail on the head there. The secret is that the digitization of these businesses and the hospitality mindset actually need to go a layer up. A lot of people think that they need to digitize the experience of the customer exclusively, and they need to treat the customer with that hospitality mindset exclusively. But what we believe is that that can't happen unless the people who actually operate that business, the employees, the frontline workers who are clocking in and clocking out, feel aligned with the goals of the business, feel that they're being treated with the hospitality mindset, and feel that they can actually engage with effective digital tools that can help them to do their job better every day. So Sparkplug is designed to allow the owners of businesses like retailers or restaurants engage their employees 
like they would a customer that they're trying to treat as positively and engagingly as possible. Um, so what Sparkplug does is it allows retail and restaurant owners to create incentive campaigns and profit sharing strategies with their point of sale employees so that those employees get paid out more whenever the business performs better. That's sort of the essential toolkit. And we do that in a totally digital first way. It interacts with those employees entirely through their phone. We integrate into the point of sale systems to allow those retail and restaurant owners to be entirely hands-off, set it and forget it, allow these campaigns to run without them having to do a ton of work. And therefore, those employees are totally aligned with what the business wants. When the business makes more money, the employees make more money. And that way, those employees feel every day that they're an owner of the business. And that creates the ultimate hospitality environment. It allows those employees to feel like every interaction they have with the customer, every extra step that they take to make sure that customer feels comfortable, engaged, excited about being a part of that business, that means that they will be ultimately benefiting from it and they don't feel like they're dispensable or disposable employees. And I think what we've learned over the past you know, two years or so of labor crisis as a result of COVID and generally just sort of the economic disadvantage that laborers have been under over the past many, many years in the US economy is that we need to create a better system for aligning the goals of business owners and the people who work for those businesses, because that ultimately trickles down into the customers being much happier and having a much better experience. I love that. I mean, the it, it's fascinating to me, and I'd love to hear, why did you study behavioral economics at Harvard? Yeah, so um, my co-founder and I both studied behavioral science at, at Harvard, and what really fascinated us was the idea that our model of economics that we've used for decades and decades is built around a false concept, the belief that humans are fundamentally rational and that they'll make decisions that are entirely rational, not only individually, <laughs> but also as a whole. Rational? Yeah, I'm telling you that they're actually pretty crazy. And I'm sure from the restaurant business, you know how yes. crazy people can be. Yes. So what we wanted to understand was, all right, if we totally reject that premise and understand the reality that humans are a little bit irrational, and sometimes they make decisions that don't necessarily align with what you'd expect, and that their behavior and their psychology is a much more powerful input into the way that a market might move or a business might work, then you can aggregate that up into understanding all of these crazy and previously unpredictable ways that a market might behave or a population might behave. Um, so that was what really fascinated us, the ability to sort of dig down into why things happen because the individuals make decisions about those things happening. So what I'm always fascinated is the origin story. Where was the spark for Sparkplug? Yeah, and absolutely. How did, <laughs> so, how did that happen? So my co-founder and I, both after studying behavioral science in undergrad, went into the finance world. Um, I was at a, a big hedge fund called Bridgewater, which is a pretty unique place and is all oriented around these really unique employee engagement philosophies. Um, so they think about their employees as a, an asset that they want to develop through time and have really, really engaging strategies to do that. Um, and at the same time, my work there was oriented around understanding the balance between business owners and laborers through time. I was really focused on labor economics. And what I had realized was that today we are in one of the most extreme imbalances we've ever been in from an economic perspective between laborers and capital holders. You know, people yes. who own businesses have a lot of leverage and laborers do not. 
until only very recently, that was entirely the case across the board. And now we're seeing that there's sort of this big disruption happening amongst point of sale laborers, hourly laborers, people who work in retail or restaurants, or even in warehouses are resisting what they feel is sort of an unfair economic deal that they're getting, particularly since they've been able to see that all of these desk bound software workers and white collar workers have a much better outcome from the period of COVID that we've experienced than they have gotten. And that makes them think, hey, this, this doesn't seem super fair to me. Um, so I was really focused on that and researching that. And my co-founder was working primarily in consumer products research. So he was trying to figure out how do products succeed in the market? Why does a particular ski that a, a ski brand puts out or a foundation that a makeup brand puts out, why do those ultimately become successful in a market, particularly in a brick and mortar market? Mm -hmm. And what he found was that a lot of these brands find their early success through interactions with the point of sale employees, getting people who are experts about their products to put their product into customers' hands because they believe in it and they like the product is sort of step one for any brand to really get penetration in brick and mortar in particular. And that really yeah. drives the wheel going forward of that product being successful into the future. And so we thought, okay, well, if this is such a valuable dynamic for brands to be able to access and retailers to be able to access and there's a huge economic imbalance in terms of the value that a point of sale employee gets out of any of these transactions. Maybe yeah. there's a way that we can meet those two problems together and say, we'll exchange value with these employees based on the influence that they're exerting over the customers that walk into the store. And in the same way that you might think about an Instagram influencer trying to leverage their audience to be you know, a, an economic driver for a particular brand, we can think of the point of sale employee as doing the exact same thing. And if we can create the right technological systems and engage with all of the data that we can get out of the retailer, then we can do that at the same scale that you can do online and sort of turn these physical spaces like you know a brick and mortar retailer or restaurant into more of a digital space, a place where you can come in and influence and understand data and see what's happening and understand the behavior of the customer as a result of that influence as quickly and as scalably as you can when you're setting up Google ads or Facebook ads or Instagram ads. It's super fascinating for me, especially in the restaurant space, when you think about influence, when you think about sales, when you think about just the, the differentiation of pay. I mean, mm -hmm. just as a restaurant that was a full service restaurant that used to have servers, bartenders, hosts, dishwashers, cooks, prep cooks, pit masters. And now with our switch to becoming a fully digital restaurant where we're implementing things like toast, I'm wearing a toast hat, uh, toast order and pay where it's a QR code. It's literally every person that comes into our restaurant has a point of sale in their pocket. Mm -hmm. It is the smartphone. So why are we discriminating how they can order their food when we can empower them to have their own, what we call digital hospitality, literally our thesis to empower them to start to provide their own experience. That's transforming how we are doing business altogether in the restaurant, because literally now we're able to take whatever tip that person leads, leaves and pay out the dishwasher more money, mm -hmm. pay out the line cook more money, pay out literally our heart of the house is making more money through COVID than we ever have in 13 years of doing business. And it's all because of the technology that is allowing us to literally give back to our team, make them live a more exciting work shift because now they're actually making that impact where before, you know, the problem with the restaurant model is, is the sales. The only person getting compensated is the server. Mm -hmm. That is the only person that's getting incentivized in this entire ecosystem. But now once you gamify 
this entire process and you do it through technology so that the retail shop owner, restaurant owner doesn't have to literally come up with their own sales programs the same mm -hmm. way that you would do at a typical you know, business where you're bringing in a sales force, you're offering them commission. This is a way that now everyone's on the same playing field. Totally. And I think the restaurant example is a particularly good one in that the focus on just that point of sale front of house employee is particularly potentially misguided because there's so much that the back of the house can do to influence the success of the front of the house, whether that's in a more traditional uh, sort of sit down restaurant environment, being able to turn one extra table per shift or two extra tables per shift because the back of the house is moving dishes through the queue much more quickly, uh, or there is just a more efficient system for distributing out uh, you know, dishes that are going out to the tables. Any of those pieces of the puzzle that you can implement with technology and any ways that you can get different employees across the stack that you're operating with in the restaurant or the retailer to move 1% 2%, 5% more efficiently, that aggregates up and accumulates into a lot of value that can then be distributed out to the employees. And you know, even if that value is split 50-50 between the employees and the owner of the, of the store, everybody's still benefiting. Um, and I think that's where some of the sort of rethinking of retail and restaurants needs to happen today is the idea that we talk a lot about minimum wages and the ways in which we compensate employees based on their hours, but it's a much more engaging and much more satisfying way to earn additional value if you are putting in your effort to do it. Um, mm -hmm. I think what we've seen is that a lot of people get burnt out in retail and restaurants, and there's sort of this myth of the retail or restaurant worker as somebody who can only last for three months or six months until they turn over. And a big part of that is because it's really exhausting work. Like I've worked in a lot of restaurants, I've worked in a lot of retailers, and it's exhausting. And a big part of that is that you're just taking down the hours. You're not thinking yeah. about what can I do here that's going to get me some extra value that's going to really give me a reward for the extra work that I'm doing, which is something that workers across the spectrum receive, except in these retail and, and restaurant environments. So the more that we can provide that, the more you can create a sustainable working environment for everyone in the particular place and also give them a better financial outcome. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, it's, it's exciting and interesting for me. You know, we had uh, Jordan Bosch, who's the CEO and co-founder of Seven Shifts. And mm. Seven Shifts is a scheduling platform that we use. It integrates with Toast, our point of sale technology. But we just recently switched over to Seven Shifts. And now we're starting to get data from every single person that clocks in. How was your shift? Mm -hmm. It's a simple question, right? But it's a check-in question that allows me as somebody that hosts a podcast, literally, I, I put content on all, all over the internet about who we are and what we do. And yes, I have an open door policy for all of my staff. But I mean, open door policy is bullshit. Like, you know, it's like, why is it easier for somebody that's following me on Clubhouse to ask me a question than it is yep. for someone that actually is on payroll where I send them, you know, I deposit money into their bank account. <laughs> Yeah. Why, why can't I have the pulse? Why can't I have that digital hospitality for my own team? Mm -hmm. But now through technology, I'm able to do that. Where, where did you see, you know, the first case study of, of your product of, of spark plug really working and, and, um, and making an impact? Yeah, I think it really started in retail environments. Um, retail environments were places where we could see a really clear, uh, value proposition for 
all of the stakeholders in a particular environment. So for example, if you walk into a ski shop and you're maybe looking to get a pair of boots, the boot fitter is ultimately going to give you a product that is going to be really meaningful to you. It's something you might use for a long time. It's probably pretty expensive. It's not something you want to take lightly. So you're engaged in the process of finding the right product. You want a really incentivized and high quality employee to be interacting with you and getting that product in your hands. The retailer really wants that employee to be engaged and incentivized to make that experience great for the person who's coming into the store. And the brand is really excited about getting that product into the customer's hands and having that be an experience that they want to rave about. And in particular, having that be the right product for them. A brand sure. that's putting out a high quality product that's going to be driven by word of mouth and reviews from consumers and you know expert employees alike doesn't want anybody to get the wrong product because that's ultimately going to be a negative outcome for them in the long run. Even if they sell one today, that could ultimately be worse for them. If that person doesn't like that product, they don't talk about it positively, or they don't ultimately want to repurchase a product from them. So environments like that, where there are multiple stakeholders, all of whom are excited about getting good products into customers' hands and who have some extra value to toss around because there's some extra margin maybe that the brand can shave off to incentivize that employee to make sure that it's a good experience. Um, those are the environments where we found the first successes of the product because a lot of times those environments were already using some sort of commissioning tool or some mm -hmm. sort of manual methodology to track exactly how employees were performing and reward them for that. And we could just take that behavior and improve it with our technology and make it a lot easier and a lot more streamlined. And in those environments, you know, running an incentive on a particular product can in increase sales, you know, 20, 35% um, with very, very minimal hit to margin, particularly relative to the cost that it might run them to run, you know, a sales promotion, something that's dropping the price of the product, which is bad for the brand in general, kind of devalues the product itself and also is much more costly to them. Um, so those retail environments are really where we started. And then we started to transition into restaurants once sort of post COVID, we started to see uh, a little bit more reopenings and a little bit more re-engagement in that sort of in-person high influence, high touch point, um, you know, retailer to, or sorry, restaurant to, you know, customer engagement. And what we found was that the use case in the restaurant is just as strong, if not stronger, because the restaurant employee is engaging directly with an entire group of people and is influencing exactly what they purchase multiple times over the course of their experience in the restaurant. You know, they're coming over to talk to them three, four, maybe five times to make sure that they're having a good experience. And if at every one of those occasions, they're recommending a product that those people might be excited to consume, um, then that's ultimately great for the restaurant and for the people in the restaurant you know, that's great for them as well, because they're going to, you know, have a better experience, have more of the experience that they came to the restaurant to have. Um, so the use case is a little bit interesting in restaurants because it's more internal. It's more focused on the restaurant trying to drive performance through its own employees. Whereas in the retail use cases, we're often thinking about how can we drive performance on behalf of a particular brand that's selling products through that uh, environment. So in the restaurant space, it's slightly different, but you know there are still obviously vendors that are interested in moving more product to the store, like sure. BevAlk vendors and um, you know distributors. Yeah, can you of, talk more talk more supply. about that? Because that's always a you know we own a bar and a traditional way of 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 doing business for any alcohol vendor, alcohol reps, beer reps mm -hmm. is is giving out swag, incentivizing the actual restaurant themselves, the bartenders themselves to push whatever product there is. How, how does this change the game? 
Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the reference point here, my first job was at the Cactus Cantina in Washington, DC, and we had a monthly sales contest for who could sell the most gold Cadillac margaritas. I won it, you know, three months in a row. Uh, cause that was my, my absolute go-to. And I think that that, uh, inspired me to think, Hey, if we could make this scalable and make this easy, then I can't imagine an alcohol brand in the world that one wouldn't want to be able to do this. Um, essentially what we can do is plug into the point of sale system, like say a toast in the particular restaurant to be able to track exactly which employees are selling which particular products, whether that's a you know particular brand of tequila or even you know different levels of a particular brand of tequila. Um, we can identify who's selling what and then allow those brands to not only see that information. So you know a distributor who's selling those particular alcohol products into the restaurant can say, okay, I'm really looking to upgrade more of these accounts to selling the top shelf products. So I'm going to reward every single employee that sells one of our top shelf liquors, um, a, an extra $5 per transaction or an extra percentage on top of that transaction as a reward to get them more excited about selling those products. And then ultimately see if that changes the behavior of the employees a little bit more durably into the future, because maybe they see that, oh, when I recommend people this higher quality product, then ultimately they do want that again when they get their second round of drinks. And then that increases the amount of tip that I get. That increases the quality of the experience of the customer. The restaurant gets more revenue. The brand gets more revenue as well. Um, so the real kind of unlock there is that we're allowing these brands to be able to see not only that live data in the restaurant, which shows them what restaurants are really driving sales of their products and what ones maybe need a little bit of help, need some support from them to try to get those products more aggressively into customers' hands. And it then allows them when they see that data to actually action on it. They don't have to just sit there and say, oh, it looks like the Southwest region isn't driving as much sale through as we would have expected, what do we do about that? Instead, it's bottom-up data that's showing them, hey, this server or this bartender in this particular bar is not selling our product, whereas others are. Let's incentivize them specifically or incentivize the whole shift of employees to try to move that product more. And if they do that across all of the restaurants that they work with, then it will aggregate up into those big macro level changes for their business, rather than just sort of hoping and praying that whatever they're doing is going to drop down into the individual restaurants and, and be more successful. Um, so yeah. it kind of reverses the flow of that data and makes it a lot more actionable for them. Actionable data. I mean, that's, uh, that's the key to, to pretty much everything, right? Yeah. You know, but the ultimate down. buzzword, everyone loves saying they have actionable data, but then you yes. ask them, what action can I take with this data? And they say, ah, well, that's up to you to figure out. <laughs> well, I think that, I mean, that, that leads me to a great, a great point is part of the problem that we have as restaurant owners now is the, is our tech stack starts to get more and more complicated. And as it gets yeah. complicated, we have so many different KPIs, so many different reports, like mm -hmm. what is the most important information that I'm looking at? And is it, first of all, it better be accurate. If it's not accurate, then it's no good. But, yeah. you know, what do I need to look at? But even more importantly, what is, what does my team need to look at? Because I don't, I don't want to waste time, my team's time with things that don't matter, you know, and totally. what, mat what matters is something that's going to move our business forward. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'd love to, to learn more about is as a software company, what I find, we have software CEOs, founders on this podcast all the time. We talk to people in restaurants, people in retail, people in digital marketing, digital media, always interested in how people scale their business. Mm. You guys announced a partnership with Cisco. We, US Foods is our primary food vendor. Cisco's their major competitor. But Cisco, obviously, this announcing a partnership 
gets you in front of restaurant operators, restaurant owners, people that are there doing it. Can you talk about how did the deal with Cisco come to be and what do you guys hope to get out of that partnership? Yeah, so I think partnerships for us in general, any channel partnership is driven by the ability for us to streamline processes that these partners are already doing generally or want to be doing, but can't do manually or are doing manually and can't scale up as a result of that. Um, so any of the partnerships that we've established with, say, point of sale providers or distributors or uh, brands, vendors, anybody who really wants to get a particular action done in general, the action of being able to view data more effectively in these environments, and then also action on that data through incentives. Um, that is, you know, a potentially great partnership, particularly in the environment where say for like a Cisco or a U.S. foods, one of these distributors, um, we can be supportive to a broad swath of their restaurants. So if they have 300,000 restaurant customers and they want all of those restaurants to be doing five, 10, 20% more revenue business, because that means that they ultimately as their main distributor will be doing five, 10, Correct. 20% more revenue business, then it makes a ton of sense for them to want to distribute out tools that are going to be really easy for those restaurants to use, really effective for them that are actually going to drive better results and to become that trusted partner for those restaurants. So that not only are they the ones that are distributing out the right products to them that they can actually sell through, but they're also distributing them the tools and the technologies and the processes that are going to make them successful restaurants in general. Um, so, you know, with any partnership that we establish, that pretty much is, is going to be the goal. And for us, partnerships are the way they go. Like it is very, very difficult as a software company to scale in a small business environment, particularly restaurants or retail that are very brick and mortar focused. They're very, you don't say. yeah, exactly. So they're, they're, they're often, you know, more, uh, you mean owner, owners that are working in their business instead of on their business, they're not looking for the tools. They're literally exactly. just, yeah, just surviving just, day by day. Candidly, yeah. they're just hard to get in touch with. Like they're, yeah. they're hard to find unless you're literally going to walk into the business and say, Hey, I've got this tool for you. And even if it's a great tool that they love to use, they don't know about it or they don't have the time to know about it because they're working in their business. Exactly. Like you said. So I think that with partnerships with their sort of trusted existing providers, you can position yourself as a warm and sort of confident tool that they can feel comfortable using. And so in that sense, you know, partnering with their existing technology tools is also really valuable. So being able to be an integrator into various point of sale systems and say, hey, this is a trusted partner of your point of sale system. We're just going to layer on top of what you already do. It's not going to be a whole difficult onboarding. It's not going to be a huge you know, training process for your employees. Like with Sparkplug, you can get set up in basically 15, 20 minutes of time. Um, and that is one of our biggest sort of product focuses through time that as we scale and add more features and add more ability to execute on particular tasks, what you can't lose is the extreme ease of use and the extreme ease of access. Um, I think there was a, a really good quote by Warren Buffett that said, if you want to find the right goals, if you want to prioritize, write down your top 20 things that you want to do, circle the top three, and then get rid of everything else. And by no means ever do the other 17 things, because those are your danger zones. Those are the things that you're going to be way too focused on because they feel like good things to be doing, but they're actually not the most important things to be doing. And in the same way, we try to express in the tool, hey, these are your three main things that you really care about. Maybe it's 
revenue, maybe it's order averages, and maybe it's your you know employee engagement metrics. Like if you have those three things settled, then you're probably going to be doing a great job and maximizing those will probably maximize a lot of the other variables that you care about. So don't think about all these crazy deep, you know, additional pieces of the puzzle, just focus on these. And as you get deeper and deeper and get it more inculcated into your workflow, you can get deeper and deeper in what you want to do and how strategic you want to be about it. So any tool that you're going to be targeting at a small business owner who's working all the time on their business has to be super easy, has to be super accessible, has to be super focused. And that's why I think a lot of partners have responded to us as a great tool because it is just so simple. I love that. So what are the three things for Sparkplug that you're focusing on for scaling? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Our number, number one focus right now is retailers and restaurants getting as many retailers and restaurants on board the platform as possible, because that is not only the biggest value proposition that we can prove out in the tool is showing that it does work for retailers and restaurants. It does move the needle for them. Like that's what we as a startup have to show to not only our existing customers, but also our future customers and, you know, future potential investors. We have to be able to show that it works for the target use case. That's the number one thing. Um, And that also fuels a lot of our other goals because if we have more restaurants and retailers on board, then we can get more brands on board that are interested in running incentives and sponsoring, you know, the, the goals of those particular restaurants and retailers. And that helps us to build out, you know, the other side of what we would call sort of the influence marketplace, the ability to drive value into those retailers and restaurants through the brands that want to be able to influence those spaces. Um, So really that starts with retailers and restaurants. Um, number two, I would say is oriented around the product and the results that we actually see. So not only do we want to maximize the number of retailers and restaurants that we have, but we always want to be increasing the average effectiveness of the tool. So whether that's an improvement in the degree to which employees can engage with it or the ease of use of the tool or the number of additional tools that we have sort of within the platform, those can all be ways to contribute to that. But the number one goal is when a retailer or a restaurant runs an incentive or receives an incentive from a brand, does it work? Do sales go up? Do order averages go up? Do the employees stick around longer? Um, So as long as we can have both of those two things happening at a good clip, that's great. And then, you know, the third thing is the the classic, or maybe not for some startups these days, but the classic just revenue. Are we making money on it? You know, is this something that we can actually scale up feasibly? Because my, my mindset and our team's mindset around starting a company and scaling a company is that we want a business model that works first and we want to scale that up. I think there are a lot of startups out there, particularly in vertical SaaS or other sort of technology tools that are looking to dominate a particular marketplace. They think, well, it's not necessarily economical now, but if it scales up to the entire market and we're the size of Uber, then maybe in 20 years, it'll be economically feasible. Um, And that just isn't really how we think about building a business. So we think a lot about today, is this a model that actually is scalable and is profitable at the scale today? And once we scale it up, it becomes more profitable. That's awesome. Um, So, you know, if we focus on those three things, then ultimately I I don't see a world in which we're not successful. So uh, in life and in business, we learn through lessons and stories. Is there any lesson um, that you've learned or any story that you can draw from of raising $3.5 million for your, your business? Yeah. Uh, I think that there are, I think the lesson that I would combine maybe into just one phrase is that the, the obstacle is the way when you are faced with an obstacle or a challenge that is ultimately going to teach you a lot more about yourself, your business, your product, 
than the smooth sailing path possibly could. And ultimately overcoming and beating that obstacle is going to drive you to far more success. So the example for us specifically was that we were going out and trying to raise our seed round in late 2019 um, and having a lot of conversations, getting some people excited, but broadly getting a lot of no's. I have probably heard no from 200 plus investors um, and that was over the course of that period and, you know, other fundraising periods that we've gone through. And primarily those no's in late 2019 were oriented around the fact that they didn't really think that brick and mortar retail and restaurants were going to be the future. They thought that everything was going to be completely digitized and that those physical spaces weren't necessarily going to be, uh, you know, meaningful businesses. We'd, and we'd have, we'd have a big real estate problem. If that <laughs> exactly. Happened. Oh yeah. Don't even get me started on the, on the consequences <laughs> of that thesis, because you know, all their prop tech investments is, would make a lot of sense if yeah, that were the case. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so we, and our thesis is very much that all of these places are obviously going to be supplemented by digital tools. They're going to become omni-channel operators that have to exist both in the digital world and the physical world, but that there's a one plus one equals three. They're more powerful if they're able to do that than if they're just digital or just physical. And we were hearing, no, 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 no. We got a couple of sort of trickling yeses and that was really exciting. And then it's March of 2020 and everything is completely shut down. And every single investor we've been talking to says brick and mortar retail tool brick and mortar restaurant tool, like get out of my inbox. Don't ever talk to me again. Come talk to me when you're doing an e-commerce solution for ghost kitchens. Yes. And I thought, okay, well, this is awful. This feels terrible. I thought that the only path for us was to raise a big round right now, expand, 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 go as fast as possible and you know, do whatever it is that we can to um, you know, grow on that classic startup path. But what we found was that over the course of 2020, our business actually exploded. It grew extremely quickly, primarily because all of the retailers that we were encountering were completely rethinking how they wanted their business to operate. They were rethinking how they thought about their point of sale employees. They were rethinking how they thought about customer engagement in the store environment. And the ones that did remain open, any of the ones that were deemed essential businesses that we were able to work with, were seeing a meaningful increase in their need to get employees engaged and excited about the work that they were doing. So they thought, let's onboard this tool and use it as a way to enhance that process. So we had a huge growth year and we're able to survive just based on the revenue that we generated, which for a startup at that phase is pretty rare. And that ultimately drove us to raising a much more successful, larger, and um, you know, better supported seed round the subsequent year. Um, so the obstacle that we faced was theoretically a killer for a startup, but because we were forced to get around it and forced to learn how our business could adapt to getting around that obstacle, we were far more successful into the future. And I think that sort of changed the DNA of our business and made us think a lot more about how do we drive a successful business model today that really is indispensable to its customers and then scale that up using venture funding as a way to expand what we can do, having already understood what it is that we need to do rather than just figuring it out and hoping that it's going to work because we have you know $20 million in the bank or something like that. Why spark plug? <laughs> Why spark plug? Uh, I think that the future of the American economy, the future of the global economy, and the future of our moral arc as a society is going to hinge on our ability to 
provide equality and dignity and fairness to all of the people that contribute to the existence of our society. And today, particularly in the US, it is a really awful experience to be on the bottom of the economic total pull. And there is no reason for that in the richest country in the world. And what we've seen is that our methods of executing on economic change through government have not been particularly successful, but I believe that methods of executing on economic change through technology and changes to markets and systems and just providing people with aligned incentives is a truly meaningful and durable solution to some of our economic challenges, particularly the ones that are the most morally infeasible. So I think that Sparkplug is a tool that can actually foment more equality in the economy and allow point of sale and hourly workers that are driving so much value and are doing so much hard work and are just trying to exist and make ends meet should be earning more value as a result of that. And there's no reason why that can't be beneficial to everyone in the, in the chain. Um, I just think that with a tool like ours scaled up to usage across all of the brick and mortar and restaurant environments that we can find can actually meaningfully change people's outcomes. And we see that every day. You know, We get texts from people who are users on the system who say, this reward helped me to get Christmas presents for my kids. It helped me to complete my Halloween costume for my family. It helped me to make rent this month. You know, We hear that all the time. And when you think about that on a society or economy-wide scale, that's a meaningful change. And that's a change that I'm you know, happy to be spending all of my time trying to uh, create. I love that. What, uh, what was the most difficult question that you were ever posed by a potential investor? I or think one, the most- Or one that you'd like to go back and change your answer to. <laughs> oh, oh, that's a good one as well. I think the, the hardest question we, the hardest questions we always receive are, typically from investors who have never actually started a company or have never actually like built something from the ground up. Um, and they ask about things that anyone who has done that knows are fundamentally impossible to predict. So they mm-hmm. say, you know, in three years, uh, what do you <laughs> think? Yeah, exactly. I'd love to know what's going to happen. In if I knew it was going to happen in three years, I'd be a trillionaire. Like yeah, I, I'd be in, able in to- In three months, tell me exactly. what's going to happen. So I think a lot of the questions oriented around, hey, how exactly is this going to work? What's your biggest challenge going to be in three years? Sure, I can make something up and I can tell you that I think our biggest problem is going to be you know, scaling past the messy middle of going from 100 employees to 500 employees. Who, who knows? But yeah. um, there is a big dislocation, I think, between investors who haven't necessarily worked in that startup environment and had to grind through some of the totally unexpected challenges and growth periods that you didn't see coming when they ask, you know, what is it that is going to drive this company forward? Well, in reality, what drives every company forward every single day is first off an incredible team hiring great people and having incredible people who are going to do the extremely hard work under the extremely hard circumstances that you need to make a startup successful. It's going to be having a great product that solves a particular problem that is really meaningful to a particular group of people. And it's going to be having a founding team that's just never going to give up on it. And every day is going to try and figure out what the solution is no matter what. And if you have those three things, maybe you'll succeed. Can't guarantee it. Still a very low percentage shot. Um, but I think that investors that understand that have always aligned a lot better with us because they understand that, look, 
we're always going to do our absolute best and work our absolute hardest to try and solve this problem and scale that solve for the problem. But a lot of investors are thinking about it more as a numbers game. They're thinking about it as like numbers on a spreadsheet and a financial model, which we all know is basically entirely made up. Like I worked in the hedge fund world. I've been in startups. I know that all of these five-year projections are completely made up and they're just based on crazy <laughs> assumptions that you type into the Excel spreadsheet. So yeah. it's not really that, that meaningful to me. And I think that when people think that that's super meaningful, I don't necessarily think of them as like an investor that's aligned with us. Who, who is your mentor? And uh, is there any lesson that they've taught you something that they, they told you a long time ago, or they told you recently that, you know, actually has come to fruition. Yeah. I have a, I have a mentor, um, in the, uh, e-commerce space, um, who is a really successful founder. He has raised, you know, now more than hundred million dollars for, for the startup that he runs. And he told me, and I actually have this taped on the wall behind the, behind this webcam. He told me to earn the seat. Um, and earning the seat really means realizing that in every moment where you face a challenge, where you may think, oh, I just wish I wasn't doing this. I just wish that I could be working a no stress job or not working at all, or just doing something other than what I'm doing, because someone is pushing me with a really hard question, or I'm really stressed about this particular outcome, or I don't want to be on this particular call. You have to realize that Everybody wants to be Elon Musk. Everyone wants to be Jeff Bezos, but no one wants to earn the seat. They don't want to do the hard work and experience the hard things that actually train you to be that person. And so you have to think of every opportunity to face down those hard challenges as an opportunity to earn the seat. And that I think has really gotten me through some, some tough situations where I've thought, geez, why did I, why did I bring this on myself? It would be so much easier if I was just hanging out, like yeah. not, not working this hard on anything. And that has, uh, been a, a great learning experience for me to sort of reframe challenges and think of them as opportunities, which sounds, you know, great in theory, but is, is obviously pretty hard to do in the moment when you're feeling that, uh, that strain. Uh, so that's a, a great piece of advice that I think everyone can use no matter what you're doing. You don't have to be the founder. You don't have to be the CEO, but whatever it is that you're doing, you know, or whatever it is that you want to be doing, probably a lot of other people want to be doing that too. And if you do the hard work to earn that seat, then, you know, you can't, you can't regret anything in retrospect if you, if you did the work. I love that. Yeah. It's one of the things we talk about to founders and people in all different aspects of life, the, the people that we're connected to on this podcast, the reason why I love doing it is the people that listen to this podcast. You know, my grandfather taught me three things, which was to stay curious, get involved and ask for help. Mm. You don't listen to a podcast unless you're curious. So anybody that's listening to this content, like you want to be better, but then you also have to do something with it. You have to, like you said, earn the seat. And when you do earn the seat, you have to be humble enough to know that there's people out there that have done it in different industries and in different businesses that you have to be willing to ask for help. Mm -hmm. Because the more that you ask for help, you can you realize how, how much information can actually benefit you, how it can prevent you from failure, and also to build actual genuine connection. You know, for me, I'm grateful, Andrew, that you uh, found our way onto this podcast. I'm really excited to see what you guys at Sparkplug build, um, especially as it pertains to the hospitality industry, but the retail industry as well. You know, like I said, this the thesis that we have is that it, it's just important. It doesn't matter the size of your village. It doesn't matter the size of your business. You know, if you're doing something that pulls you out of bed, that gets you excited every day to, to actually make it to, to make an impact. 
you know, to make an impact on the world, then you're doing the right things. And you can start to use all this technology that's available to us. You can start to reach out, you can make an impact and that impact will have profound, profound impact. Absolutely. Um, I really appreciate having me on, Sean. This is great. And I really am impressed by what you've been able to do, obviously with your business, but also the way in which you're able to, to share those strategies with, with other business owners, because I, I really do think that, like you said, uh, the open door policy is a great invitation, but sometimes people <laughs> don't take you up on it. So you got to yeah. be uh, asking the question, giving the information, shouting out there from the rooftops about ways that people can uh, help themselves and their businesses. And I, uh, I definitely appreciate people like you out there making that happen. Well, I appreciate you guys, you you building the companies that you do, so that the notifications that we do get are meaning, <laughs> are, that we that are meaningful, right? Because that that's ultimately what we're all trying to do is like you know, there's so much information out there, but we want to get notified of things that are meaningful, and sometimes those things are not the things that we want to hear, but they're actually going to help us build a better business, mm -hmm. make a better impact. So, uh, we're going to put links in the show notes. Stover will put links um, to how people can find out more about Spark Plug, find out more about Andrew. Um, and it, always you guys can reach out to me at Sean P. Walchef on LinkedIn, on TikTok, on Instagram, on Clubhouse. Uh, every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, we do a Clubhouse call. Hopefully, Andrew, the week that your episode drops, uh, we can budge you for, you know, an hour of your time to come on a Clubhouse call and uh, I'd love more, to. more about Spark Plug and um, all the cool things that you're doing. We've got an incredible community over on Sport, Sport, uh, Clubhouse that have been joining us. And if you're listening to this podcast, please download that app because uh, you can get involved and ask Andrew all the questions that I didn't ask him. So, <laughs> the hard ones, the ones I didn't want to answer. Questions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm jealous that you're, uh, you guys are out building a company in Boulder. I went to see you. I worked at BJ's restaurant on Pearl Street, which is where I believe your headquarters is. Yes, exactly. We, uh, we built the company in Boulder and I've uh, definitely driven past that BJ's many a time on the way to the REI where I was inspired to help out point of sale employees that were always putting the right products in my hands. So well, definitely a small world there. That is a small world, but uh, that's the beauty of the internet is it, it makes it much smaller. So thank you for your time and uh, we appreciate it. Can't wait thank to you, see John. what you guys build.